Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When faced with the conflict between two parties, our natural tendency is to assume that there is a right side and a wrong side. Why? Because we fancy ourselves to be right, or we imagine that we can become right, and thus fail to see what is obvious in Scripture, beginning with ourselves, in the presence of the Lord, all parties are wrong. In the story of Jonah, the prophet was sent to Nineveh, the great city, in order to cry against it because their wickedness had caught the attention of the Lord. In any other literary genre, the one sent to confront Nineveh would be understood as the protagonist, but not in the Bible. In Jonah, as throughout the biblical canon, the prophet is able to expose the sins of others because he himself is exposed by the teaching, so that, as Paul says, no human being might boast in the presence of God. Richard and I discuss Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 214 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are just coming off our discussion of the Gospel of Mark. And as we said over and over again throughout that text, Mark is both an invitation and an admonition to preach the Gospel, to carry the Gospel forward. And Mark repeatedly grapples with the question of signs and wonders, and he does so in a very critical way. And this critique is not unique to Mark. This concept is in some ways more explicitly expressed in other Gospels. You have, for example, both in Luke and Matthew, this admonition, again, that no sign will be given except the sign that was given to the prophet Jonah. And in Luke, you have the scene of Jesus sleeping in the boat. In Mark, you have the scene of Jesus sleeping in the boat. So it's clear that these texts are interconnected with this text. And that's true, not only of the entire Pentateuch, but of the law and the prophets. It's all interconnected. By now, if you haven't figured that out, you're just resisting what we're telling you. We have Jesus sleeping in the boat while the disciples are fretting. And we have Jonah we'll see sleeping in the boat. And then also the sign that's given to Jonah. And what's interesting in Jonah is we notice that there's not actually much of a sign that's given to him. He just has to trust the word. But in both Mark and in Jonah, what's really important is that they are spreading the word to the Gentiles, spreading the seed broadly, making sure the teaching goes out. 
these are central themes. And what we see as so powerful in Mark becomes even stronger when we see those same motifs already used in the book of Jonah. Remember, and this is difficult for Christians to accept, especially theological students who are stubborn in their essentially cultural chauvinism, their belief that somehow the New Testament is something new or better than that which was handed down in the Torah and the prophets and the writings and so forth, the instruction of God. It's not better and it's not new. In fact, as we've said many times, the New Testament is an invitation to the Romans to read the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the meat. The Old Testament is the bread. It's such a scandal. It is such a scandal that Christians try to argue that the New Testament is modern and evolved and the, the God of the New Testament is much nicer and much more humane. Heaven forbid we have a humane God because then you're worshiping a statue. We don't want a humane God. We want the God of Abraham who is undepicted and unseen and who is only manifest in the doing of his will which Jesus carried out perfectly upon the earth in the Gospels. There was a great quote from an article that was recommended to us by a listener of the podcast. And it mentioned that the only way that Nineveh could repent is if a God without mercy and without compassion confronted them. And that was what allowed them to repent. They realized that there was nothing that was going to move God. If God were a pushover, they probably would have done nothing. And it was a great point that was made by this article. Yes, and what I'm saying specifically about this false tension between the Old and the New Testament that Christians fall prey to. I mean, people actually say things, and Father Paul critiques this in his own work. They talk about the progression of Western civilization and its enlightenment beginning with Greek philosophy and how it led them ultimately to the Bible and then they incorporate Greek philosophy into their theology because after all, Plato was talking about the same God as Jeremiah and Ezekiel. This is incorrect. The Bible is a critique of Hellenistic philosophy and religion because Hellenistic philosophy and religion, like contemporary secularism, is the religion of empire. It's the way you justify to yourself putting your boot on the neck of the downtrodden. And you do it in such a way that you actually see yourself as the good guy. This is the mentality. This is how Plato's good citizen and his philosopher king function. Because you think you're making something good. But only God in Genesis can make something good. And only God has a right to decide that it's good. And as we heard in Mark, no one is good but God. So please recognize that when we as Christians look down our nose at the Old Testament like it's just a bunch of old codes that are cruel and backwards and inhumane, when we give in to this nonsense, what we are doing is taking a stand against the scriptural word. The way you subdue the tyrants of old is the way we subdue the tyrant in our midst, beginning with our own reflection in the mirror, is by humbling ourselves and submitting to the scriptural God. And I mean from Genesis to Revelation. And Jonah, as part of the Book of the Twelve, one of the things that we notice is the big enemy 
is not God. It's the human ego. It's the human ego that prompts Israel to think that it's so strong it doesn't need God. And then God brings the enemies against Israel, whom he then has to defeat because their ego gets too big and they think they defeated Israel by their own strength. It's the human ego that God is fighting. And the human ego is unique neither to Israel nor to the Gentiles. It is a human phenomenon that always is in God's way for his will to be done. Here's why you can't see the scriptural God. Because the scriptural God is the absence of your reflection. That's the anti-idolatry school. And how can a human conceive of a deity that doesn't somehow reflect their ego or their personality or their self-image? How? You can't because the light in the lamp of your body is darkness because you look at things from your perspective. Scripture is this constant pressure to go against the grain of your perspective. And it's an adventure against you that can't be successful because as a biological creature, you can't but look at things from the perspective of the darkness that is in you. And so your only hope, despite yourself, is to submit to that which goes against you in the will of God contained in Scripture. So notice, even in the way that people say, I like the New Testament, but I don't like the Old Testament, or I'll take these verses, but not those verses, because they're backwards and evil. You are already making your point of view the reference. So how can you be edified? You can point out any regulation or any verse in the Bible. You can find something disagreeable. But my question for you is, is there any literature that you've ever consumed that doesn't have disagreeable characters and disagreeable plot turns and disagreeable actions taken? It's a story. How can you have a movie without people doing disagreeable things? There's no plot tension. There's no instruction. There's no teaching. The fact that there is something disagreeable is the way that it works. Instruction requires destruction. There's a way that you understand how the world works, and if you want to be instructed, that paradigm has to be destroyed. By confronting us with those things that are disagreeable, God uses those so that our ego starts to be dismantled. Take any American literature or British literature, take Harry Potter. Do you think that because Voldemort is this evil character and the Death Eaters are evil characters in the story. Do you think that means that the point of Harry Potter is for you to become a Death Eater and do what they did? Take The Sopranos, an American drama that used to be on HBO. Now, a lot of people think that Tony Soprano is a hero, but do you think that the writer of the story is making out of Tony Soprano a hero? I don't think so. Do you think the point of that literature, because it presented you with chauvinism and abuse and cruelty, is that Tony Soprano is a model for your behavior? It's literature. Do you think that the codes and laws of the Old Testament were actually followed ever? Do you think that it's possible that maybe the reason Paul is so angry at his community in the first century in Galatians is because they're turning to fundamentalism and doing something that was never intended by the law? It's a story. There were characters in the story that were to follow these regulations. Not you. 
I tried to explain this last week at the end of Mark. So please, I'm pushing on this, Richard, because I really want to excise this demon out of the minds of our listeners that the Old Testament is somehow backwards or tainted by its cultural setting and all of this nonsense. I find it odd that I have to explain this to Americans who let their kids watch any nonsense in the movies and on TV and on the internet. I have to explain to them that this is literature. But the difference between this and The Sopranos is that this is edifying. So let's begin. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. First, we have Jonah and his name includes the son of Amittai, which is related to the word emet, which means truth. And so a son of my true things or my truths is this Jonah. So we have this irony because you know, we'll find out soon enough that Jonah is not necessarily a good guy in his actions. Yet the word comes to him as the son of those true things. Now, Yona also is the word for a dove or a silly bird that flits around. So you have this silly bird that flits around who somehow is related to God's true things. And he is the one to whom the word comes. And this is where the prophecy begins. This sounds very different than the beginning of Hosea. I mean, the word came to Hosea. Hosea, that's salvation. Jonah, he's the silly bird. He's a pigeon. He's a dove that flits around. The other prophets use that image to make fun of Israel. This is the guy's name. Yet he is the son of the true things, my true things. And so we begin with the word going to this person as the prophet. And his first verse is to cry against Nineveh, which is also unique even because Nineveh is the capital city of the Gentiles in Assyria. This is not a prophet to Israel. We are usually to Israel. They're the ones who receive the law. But here we have a prophet going to the Gentiles. In the same article that I mentioned a moment ago, that was a significant point that this is a word of prophecy going to the Gentiles. And it's interesting, Richard, in verse 2, I want to point this out again in conjunction with our conclusion of Mark, the word here for arise, kum in Hebrew, those who speak Arabic will recognize it. It's the same consonantal root. You say, for example, in Arabic, in Christian churches on Easter, you say, al-Masih qam, which means Christ is risen. And here, it's the same word in Hebrew, and it means to stand up. At the end of Mark, Jesus was stood up by his father, to go and carry the message forward. And here, Jonah is being stood up to go and carry the message forward and outward to the Gentiles. That's why the tradition borrows from the prophecy of Jonah in its paschal imagery. Because there's an understanding for those who are familiar with scripture that Pascha, as I said last week, is about the teaching of the gospel, which is the invitation to the law of God. It's about ultimately the Torah 
which is what Jonah is carrying here. He's not carrying the gospel. He's carrying the Torah out to the nations. This preposition in Hebrew, al, means to come from above, over, or against. He's being raised by the call of God's teaching to go against the foreign city. But the way that God in Scripture goes against the foreign city is not the way that Alexander goes against the foreign city. It's what will later be understood in Paul's teaching as the sword of the Spirit. You go against your enemy with the word that emasculates you. That's the funny thing. You can't go to critique the Ninevites who are wicked unless you yourself are emasculated by the word that commands and carries you forward as both the instruction and the sign we heard at the end of Mark. The city is always the extension of the human ego, and that's what the word is always preaching against. The word is preaching against the people, and it's preaching against the city. And here it's not just preaching against the city, but it's preaching against the great city, the great city, the big city. So this is the archetype of the extension of the human ego, and this is the word is going to speak against it, but it doesn't just speak against Ninevites. It speaks against every human with an ego. Civilization is the manifestation of human ego, because in order to build a metropolis, somebody has to be poor. Somebody has to be exploited. Now, we've perfected the art of self-righteousness and self-deception. We see ourselves as the good guy. We don't see a connection between our wealth and our construction and other people's suffering. We don't even in this country call our wars wars. We have words we make up to avoid declaring war officially, but we're constantly at war. So there is a price in blood for civilization. And this is why in the scholarship of Father Paul, he emphasizes shepherdism as the scriptural paradigm, because the shepherd lives at the mercy of God upon the land freely. He makes no claims, he holds no possession, he takes care of the flock, which becomes the metaphor for preaching, and he just passively avoids conflict. So please contextualize scripture correctly. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Jaffa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Scholars try to answer where exactly is Tarshish. A lot of people say that this is in Spain. The nice thing about the idea of it being in Spain is that it means that Jonah going from Jaffa in the eastern tip of the Mediterranean would be going to the western tip of the Mediterranean, meaning he's going to go as far away from not only God's call, but also from Nineveh. Nineveh is to the east of Jaffa. Tarshish is as far west as you could possibly go, if that's correct. So Jonah is doing as much as he can to go away. And it's also interesting with what you said, Father, about how God says, arise, go to Nineveh, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. So rather than rise up to go to Nineveh, he rose up to go down to Jaffa to take a boat to the sea to go as far as he could go. So rather than going up, he went down as far as he could. Now, I just want to point out that in verse 4, 
The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. I just want to point out about this verse that Paul uses this in the story of the New Testament where he was hindered by Satan and there was a shipwreck. Now, you're going to say, well, how can Paul be drawing that connection when here it was the Lord and there it was Satan? But Paul also says that the Lord sent Satan against him. God controls the whole situation. Satan in scripture is laughable. I find it interesting how they make such a big deal out of the devil. He's laughable in scripture. He has no power except what God tells him to do. He's a slave. Which means that it's the Lord who's causing trouble for Paul in the New Testament. That's how you have to hear scripture. That's why theodicy is idiocy. Because every page I turn, God is messing with people. It's literature. So, you want to run away from the presence of the Lord? He's going to rock the boat. I love that song. A buddy of mine used to sing that when I lived in New York when we were talking about corporate politics. Everybody sit down. Sit down, you're rocking the boat. Well, God's rocking the boat in Jonah. Then the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So here we have what inspired these echoes in the Gospels of Jesus falling asleep in the bottom of the boat. And here we have Jonah falling asleep in the bottom of the boat. But what's so ironic is that Jesus was falling asleep out of comfort knowing that God was in control. Jonah is trying to do the exact opposite. He's trying to deny God's control and to move away from God, somehow assuming that God has no control over Tarshish that he has over Jaffa or he has over Nineveh. So it's a kind of dullness, it seems, of Jonah's wit where he's falling asleep and he doesn't wake up even when there's a storm and everyone is doing whatever they can to pray to their gods and to throw everything overboard, whatever they can to just survive. Where are you going to go when you're fleeing from the God who created the heavens and the earth and who rolls up the heavens like a curtain? Where are you going to go from the God who can open the sea with the blast of his nostrils? Where are you running to? How can you run from the word of the Lord which is with you whether you want it or not? It was spoken to you. You're stuck. And verse 6 is very interesting. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up and call upon your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. So here, as in the case of Mark later on, where the Roman centurion is a positive character in the story, here, the godless captain of the ship is acting correctly. He's saying, look, I'm willing to trust in your God. He's begging the prophet to call upon the name of the Lord. It's beautiful. It amplifies the cowardice of Jonah. And the righteousness of this Gentile, because it contrasts with, say, Jeremiah or Amos, where Israel is begging the prophet to stop prophesying. Here, the Gentile is begging the prophet to prophesy, to call out to his own God, the very God that he was trying to avoid. Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell 
I'm Jonah. The bad guy in the story, in the New Testament, it's the functional Pharisee. Here it's the functional prophet. The bad guy in the story is the prophet. He's the unlucky penny. <laughs> but this is how scripture functions. You want to say when you're hearing the New Testament that you're not like the Pharisee. Well, that makes you the Pharisee. Actually, the Pharisee is still better than you because at least the Pharisee is teaching. Because it's the Pharisee that wrote scripture for you. Paul, as we've said many times, was the pride and joy of the Pharisees. He was the Pharisee's Pharisee, so to speak. Now here, Jonah is in the position of being compromised by the word of the Lord that you're hearing on our lips in order to emasculate the Gentiles whose wickedness rose up in the eyes of the Lord. Then they said to him, tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? This is beautiful because anyone who's religious and comes from a particular religious tradition wants to brag about those questions. Well, I'm a priest. I'm from the Middle East. In fact, my family's from the Holy Land. We have a proud tradition. They are my people. Everybody wants to brag. But here, the text is set up so that if he answers any of those questions, he's bringing shame to his people. Jonah can't escape the foolishness that he began once he fled from the face of the Lord. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So he answered correctly, but he's not behaving the way he answered. But again, I want to stress that his hypocrisy does not take us off the hook for the content of his statement. And this is the point that Matthew especially is trying to emphasize about the Pharisee. Do what he says, not what he does. And any preacher who tries to set a good example, be afraid and run away because they are asking you and inviting you to become twice as much a child of hell as themselves. The fact that he calls himself a Hebrew, this is also convicting because Hebrew, the root itself, may very well relate to the idea of passing over. Abram is called a Hebrew when he comes from his home. The slaves in Egypt are called Hebrews when they pass into Sinai. And here he's saying he's a Hebrew. So he's passed from his land, out of the land, into the sea. It bears some resemblance, physical resemblance in its writing to slave. And so he claims to be a slave, someone who has passed over, and he puts himself in the ranks of Abram and those who left Egypt, and one who fears the Lord. So he's saying the correct things, like you were saying, Father. He's saying the correct things like the Pharisees, but he doesn't follow them because he says, I fear the Lord. He doesn't fear the Lord. He fled the Lord. He says that he made the sea and the dry land. The dry land, that word is used in Genesis when the dry land is created for the first time, before it's called land, it's just called the dry thing. So he recognizes the one who created the heavens and the earth, but as you said a moment ago, Father, how ironic that you would try to flee by sea the one who created the heavens and the earth. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, 
Jonah is preaching the fear of the Lord, but he's not practicing it. He's running away because of a different type of fear. And these ungodly Gentiles, these unclean Gentiles who have not received the good news of the law of Moses, they themselves hear the preaching and become extremely frightened in a correct way because they don't want to mess with the God of Abraham. And then they ask the prophet, how could you do that? But this is also entrapment for the Gentiles because in their judgment of the prophet, they're ultimately bringing the judgment of the Lord upon themselves. Don't make out of the Gentiles the good guys to trap people fall into when they read the New Testament. Because remember, God was angry and dissatisfied with their wickedness and sent the prophet against them. But the prophet is not righteous. If the prophet is righteous and fancies himself righteous, he's not going to teach them. He's going to step on their neck. That's the difference between the prophet and the emperor. The prophet is emasculated. This is so important because we have this word that is more powerful than the person who brings the word. That's what's most important. And this is the problem. People listen, but they don't listen. They hear what somebody says, but then they say, ah, how can I listen to them? They're a Muslim and I'm a Christian. Or how can I listen to them? They're this ethnicity, I'm that ethnicity. And they won't listen to what they're saying, even if what they're saying makes sense. Or even more insidiously, well, they don't even follow it themselves. Why should I listen? This is exactly what's going on here. And what makes the Gentiles look positive in this story is that they listen to what Jonah says, even if Jonah doesn't listen to what Jonah says. They say, well, Jonah, if you believe in this God who created the heavens and the earth, what were you thinking? You know, sometimes it takes saying your stupid idea out loud before you hear how stupid it is. That's exactly how preaching works. Sometimes you just have to say the wisdom of God out loud, even if you don't understand it or agree with it or accept it. Just saying it out loud. Remember, it's the word of the Lord that came to Jonah. It's the word of the Lord that is the protagonist in the story. It's the word of the Lord that exposes Jonah's hypocrisy. It's the word of the Lord that causes a positive reaction in the Gentiles. It doesn't mean the Gentiles are positive. It doesn't mean Jonah is negative because no one is righteous before the Lord. No one is righteous in scripture before the Lord. The only protagonist is the teaching itself. And so where the teaching produces a correct outcome, the credit goes to the teaching. Where the teaching exposes unrighteousness, the credit goes to the teaching, not to the one carrying the teaching because they themselves are exposed in their preaching. Remember that the admonition that the one who judges will be judged applied to Jesus because he preached the judgment and the people judged him. It doesn't mean necessarily what you think it means. The way people abuse this expression as a way to not be accountable to the criticism from their neighbor. No, that's not what it's saying. It's simply stating a fact. Forget truth. It's simply a fact that if you announce God's criticism to a mob, the mob will turn against you. If you're announcing God's criticism of the mob, it's a witness. But if you're self-righteous and they attack you, it's a judgment against you. Either way, it's judgment. So please, hear scripture scripturally. 
But I think this is a good place to stop and just to reflect on some of these images. And we'll pick up next week with verse 11. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you very much, Father. See you on Tuesday with Father Paul. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.